Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Grant us your Holy Spirit to illumine this, your word to us, that we would know your Christ and know your will. Thank you, Jesus, that you came as we remember in this Advent season. Prepare our hearts, Father, as David was talking about earlier, to meet you in all of the dimensions of your first and look forward to your second coming. Thank you that your welcome is by grace and grace alone, by virtue of your crucifixion and resurrection. Pour out your Holy Spirit now, Jesus, we pray. Bring us to yourself for your glory, and in, we may, in your name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. So a little tiny bit of crowdsourcing here. Show of hands in various ways if you feel comfortable raising one. Raise your hand if. You have heard Christmas music, seen Christmas decorations, or have seen Christmas advertising, holiday advertising, in the past week. Okay, keep them up if you're comfortable. What about the week after Thanksgiving? What about the month before November, the month before Thanksgiving? What about before Halloween? What about September? Okay, there's still, oh, ah, okay, life is depressing, but that's why we're here. So, you may have noticed that it's Christmas season or Advent season right now, and the marketing push is in full effect, and for my own money, I'm neither Big Homer nor Bahumbug about Christmas advertising, marketing, music decorations, getting earlier and earlier and earlier. It is what it is, you know? But if you think about what we're getting at there, and it's consumerism-driven, what's the invitation? What's the offer? There's different ways to summarize what are we after, what are they after with the bombardment of Christmas and holiday themes in different ways. Maybe one way to put it would be simply celebration. That's the offer. That's the invitation. Come on, get together with friends and family, show some gratitude, do some giving. I encountered a couple signs even on Haddon Avenue walking over here this morning to church on this very sunny day in Collingswood. It's the most wonderful time of the year, right? 
Here's another survey. You don't have to raise your hands for this one. For how many of you, and whether it's this Christmas season, this Advent season specifically, or more generally, when it feels like things actually aren't that great, and things maybe get a little bit harder, maybe it's looking like this year for your Advent season or for your Christmas season, or you can think back to some previous Christmases, Christmas, New Year's, when your life in those weeks was one of those dark Christmas movies, like an anti-Christmas movie, when it's Christmas season, but all this weird, hard, bad stuff is happening. I think that that's the case for a lot of us a lot of the time, where the darkness and the drama the dysfunction and the blow-ups all seem to cluster around here. And things can get pretty dark pretty fast. I think I've mentioned this to a couple of you before, maybe from the pulpit. As we get into December, I'll get the comment from people, and I appreciate the comment, Jim, you must be really busy right now. This is your Super Bowl. I'm like, well, hopefully my Super Bowl's in February, if you know what I mean. But Jim, you must be busy. It's, your churches are s super busy right now. So think about it. For me, at least, when I'm asked the question, are you, are, are pastors or clergy busy during Christmas season, Advent? At least for me, I'll say no, but yes, in a couple different ways. So the no part is, if you plan ahead, December doesn't have to slam pastors. And I'm really proud of our team here at Liberty Collingswood. We have been working hard, haven't we, team, over the past month, two months, three months to get ready for Advent before it starts. And I won't dispute that when I found out that Advent was not starting the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, it may have felt to me like a Christmas miracle, that Christmas came early by giving us an extra week until Christmas actually coming. Who knows for sure? And then also... A fair amount of the routine stuff connected with pastoral ministry actually dies down to a large extent. So the, oh, hey, Jim, I've been meaning to mention to you, or could, could we get together sometime for, for a cup of coffee or a happy hour? Or, yeah, so this was on my to-do list. Those sorts of things, and it's okay if you reach out to me in December for those things, absolutely, but those things are a little bit less because you're busy and you got other stuff going on which is fine by me. But, so if that routine stuff decreases during holiday season, pastorally speaking for me and my observation, the emergency stuff spikes. And so it's pretty much a net zero. Am I busier or not? Well, with routine stuff, planning stuff, it's actually pretty good. Not too crazy. But then that's balanced out in the other direction by lots of crazy, bad things happen around now. I think it's easy enough to see some reasons. Reasons like pressure, proximity, substances, all on the rise in the holiday season. And isn't it true that for Christmas, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, holiday season more generally, that it's during December leading up to Christmas 
that whatever fault lines there may be in your life, in your family, in your friends, in your job, whatever fault lines there might be in all of those different things, Christmas is one they crack open and it all comes out. But what do you know? I think that there is a true sense in which when we think about, if I could put it this way, the Christian Christmas, the real Christmas, what it's all about, Jesus coming to the earth, David was talking about that earlier. The real Christmas is really a lot like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. If you know the old holiday special, Christmas, Charlie Brown Christmas special from the 60s, where there are all of these beautiful trees all around and in the lot. But the one that Charlie Brown gets, homely, frail, small. In a lot of ways, that fits Christmas better to me. And that's by design. So what's on offer by the Christian Christmas, the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, homely and frail? It's less celebration, but hopefully more joy. And instead, the invitation or the offer, as opposed to the consumeristic Christmas, which is celebration, what does the Christian Christmas offer? Consolation. That's what's offered to us. And that's a little bit less like the office Christmas party that you get dragged to every year that where there's over-drinking and riding lawnmowers everywhere. But it's more a campfire or a fireplace. An intimate space with a lot of love. And that's the invitation of consolation available to all of us as we receive this season, the servant by faith. So two parts from here for the rest of the sermon from the book of Isaiah, Advent sermon series dedicated to the season. We are going to be talking about the servant songs of the season from Isaiah. The servant, as we encounter this figure in the later chapters of the book of Isaiah, which is an Old Testament book, one of the major prophets from the Hebrew scriptures, focusing on about four passages that relate, like I just said, to this figure, the servant, who on one hand, the servant is a key figure in the later chapters of Isaiah for sure, but by that same measure, the identity of that servant is very contested. So we're going to talk first about the context of the servant, then we're going to talk about the consolation of the servant. So first the context of the servant, and then the consolation of the servant. So the context of the servant, and this whole servant motif, who is the servant? And that's something that has been disputed. A couple different layers to it. So for one thing, is the servant, as we encounter the servant in Isaiah, including Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, is the servant in view, is that individual, one person, or is it collective? And there are different views about that. So in the collective direction, when God speaks to the servant in Isaiah, maybe he's speaking to all Israel. And Israel is the servant to the world, the light to the nations. Or in different ways, if you've heard of the Qumran community connected with the Dead Sea Scrolls not too far from the time of Jesus, the Qumran community thought that they, an Israelite remnant, 
were the servants. So collective, but then circumscribed to this specific group, individual or collective. Th then another layer to the question is, is this servant figure messianic? Because in these servant passages, both in the passages themselves and then around, it seems like there's a lot of future hope connected with this idea of the servant to come. Is this a Messiah figure who's going to bring God's rescue even for the end of time? And I just sort of set up those questions, and they've been disputed ancient times, modern times, sometimes pretty fraught as it relates to questions, Judaism and Christianity, and that sort of thing. All that said, that's all I'm going to say about that. Just for the sake of time. And so instead, I'm going to stand within the majority Christian interpretation of these passages in Isaiah to say that, yes, the servant in Isaiah is singular and not plural, individual and not collective, yes, is messianic, and yes, points forward to Jesus. Which, by the way, is a viable strand in Jewish interpretation. Yes, individual, yes, messianic, both before and after Jesus. So it's not like the church is going out on a limb here. As we've seen these passages and said, for starters, how like Jesus does this messianic figure seem? Then thinking more about the context, what was Israel up to when God here, through Isaiah, is talking about the servant who's to come? Not great thought. Israel is on the brink of exile. So, tiny bit of Hebrew Old Testament history. For a long time, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and the father of the Israelite nation is Abraham. And so out of all of the nations of the world, after the Tower of Babel, God says, I will still preserve for myself my people in my place with my presence. And so from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob comes the Israelite nation brought down into slavery in Egypt and then brought out through the Exodus, through the conquest, Joshua and Judges. They come into Canaan, the promised land. Things are great. Get some kings. Little less good. Exile begins to happen. First, northern kingdom Israel exiled to Assyria, and then further on, the southern kingdom Judah exiled into Babylon. As we encounter the later chapters of Isaiah, Israel is about to go into exile. It's upon them. As God's judgment upon his chosen nation that simply wasn't acting like it. On the brink of exile, because there is, to use a modern term and combine it with an ancient one, systemic idolatry. Everywhere in ancient Israel, where they were going after the nations and the idols of the nations, as opposed to staying upon worship the one true God only, no graven images, all that stuff, but picking and choosing among the nations with these idolatrous gods, statues or whatever, and idolatrous systems. So it's systemic idolatry, not just individual, because in the ancient world, these idols were not just for you to worship in your heart, but they related to economics and social structures and international politics and everything else, including the individual, so that every level in ancient Israel, there is evil and corruption and injustice through and through and through. Through this idol worship, but then so much more than that. At the end of Isaiah chapter 41, for example, right before we get to our sermon passage for this morning, 
there is a behold about how messed up all of it is. Isaiah 41, 29. Behold, they, the idols, are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images, those statues, they are an empty wind. So there's distress. Politically, economically, ethnically, all around. And the good news is, well, here in our modern context, we've solved all of those things. Just kidding. We are under some of those same burdens. And if you're here this morning, either in the room or worshiping with us online, thank you for being here. I would suggest this to you, or posit a question. If it's the case that where you are wrestling with things, the claims of the Bible about Jesus, crucified and resurrected, God's Son coming in human form, dying on the cross, rising again, starting this Christian movement, if the claims of Christ stretch your faith or stretch your credibility, at the same time, the claims of the scriptures about the condition of our world, those claims should not. They should not stretch your credibility. I think if we take an honest view about the corruption of the world that the scripture says, this is what it's like out there and everywhere, I think an honest assessment would say, yeah, that sounds about right. It is pretty dark all out there and in here, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Doesn't it ring true? Both as the Bible says that God created the world, the cosmos, us beautiful and noble, but then also so broken, so ugly, so messed up, so dark. That is who we are. And these things as well spin forward personally for Israelites. The average Israelite in this context here, as Isaiah is preaching, probably would have been some combination of preoccupied, disobedient, and disillusioned. Again, maybe like us. Preoccupied. All this stuff is going on. Wrapped up in anxiety or worry. If you're a follower of Jesus, we have confession of sin every week. Because we take for granted our disobedience, even though we need to press through that to seek to obey Jesus more. And disillusion. If you're a follower of Jesus, wondering, God, where are you in all of this mess? Is this even real? Is there good news for our world? Is there good news for me? Is there good news for my family? Is there good, ne good news for the future of all of this mess? If your faith is stretched in those ways... This is the context into which Isaiah was originally preaching. And that takes a toll, we feel it. And so I love the images that we encounter in verse 3. And again, kind of nailed it. That feels like we can feel, including here in the holiday season, a bruised reed and a faintly burning And you just kind of feel like you're done. And you don't have anything left. The irony about the Advent season here in the church is that if you feel like a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick, you feel kind of done. You can own that during the Advent season 
and you're nearer to God than you might even realize. In our disobedience, in our disillusion, in our preoccupation, God doesn't run away from us. But you could say that the whole point of the Advent season is that God moves, rushes towards us even, in Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Contemporary Christian writer and thinker Rebecca McLaughlin put it this way, and this is a reflection quote on our worship folder. Disillusionment is not the end of the Christian life. It's the beginning. Disillusionment is not the end of the Christian life. It's actually the beginning. So because grace is real and Jesus is crucified and resurrected, if you're disillusioned, you're actually not on the wrong track because Jesus got there. And so whether we're here as skeptics, committed Christians, in between, the invitation for us in this season, as our context overlaps, at least in some ways, with the original context of the servant, the invitation for us is the consolation of that same servant. Who is the servant? Let's ask a couple of questions. Where the servant is and what he does. Where is the servant? The servant is near to the Lord and near to the low. Look at verse 1 of our sermon text. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And this is one of those passages where the church has confessed, this is so like Jesus. And in the episode, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, the baptism of Jesus, not only does the baptism of Jesus echo this passage, but it fulfills it. As Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized in the Jordan, and the heavens open, and the Spirit descends, and a voice from the heavens cries out, This is my Son, whom I love. Listen to him. Behold my servant, says God. And this servant, Jesus of Nazareth, is given a full endowment of the Spirit. Earlier this fall, I read a book on classic Christian categories of Christology, doctrine of Jesus, just so I could keep my chops in, in that direction. Tiny bit of Christology. The church confesses that Jesus is one person, two natures. In his divine nature, Jesus was actually divine, joined in his human nature, and it's the human nature of Jesus that is given a full endowment of the Spirit. Jesus is completely Spirit-filled in his human nature to be equipped completely in his person to do the work of Messiahship to which he's been called, and as a result of that, he is strong. Beginning of verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. That's not who he is. But interestingly, if Jesus is strong, full of the Spirit, he's not high. Verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Jesus is not arrogant. He's not attention-seeking. He's not all about him, even though he deserved to be. That's not Jesus. He's not high. And that's a pattern for us as well. As we come to faith in Jesus, don't be arrogant. We're near to the Lord, if I could put it this way, but we're not the Lord. The Lord is. We are not. Be humble. But then also, don't think too low of yourself, because you're near the Lord. You're created in God's image. Even though 
we can be sucked in sometimes to that black hole of feeling like I'm worthless, or I'm at least worth a lot less and good for a lot less than people around me, Jesus comes to you and says, that is not true. That's a lie. You're created in the image of God, and as you receive me by faith, you're being recreated into that same glorious, beautiful, forgiven image all over again. Don't think too low of yourself. No matter who you are or what you've done or what your baggage or history might be, that's not who you are. Your identity is now in me. So Jesus, near to the Lord, but beautifully and paradoxically, he's also near to the low. If we go back again to verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. As I was doing commentary work over the past couple of weeks, it came to me this way through what I was studying. I never thought of it quite in these terms. A bruised reed, faintly burning wick, that's both extinguished and useless. And I had thought about before the extinguished part. You're just kind of done. A reed is bruised, burning wick, burned down. But then also, especially in that ancient culture, things like baskets and lamps, candles, were much more functional than they are now. I guess since New Jersey banned plastic bags, bags have come back on my radar again because we actually need them. And so at, at least for me, my, my bag desert, first little problem that, that I live in is I either have way too many of those things or none. And I really need them. But in general, reeds were made for baskets in the ancient world. They, 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 they were engines of commerce, engines of family life, engines of everything. The reeded basket was the primary means of just carrying stuff. But you can't build a basket with a bruised reed. It's useless. And if you don't have a lamp, you don't have light. Candles aren't just for funny smells in the ancient world. They were for light. Lamps illuminated. And you needed them. So if you're a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick, you're done, you're extinguished. But then also, you're useless. I have nothing left to give, nothing left to contribute. But understand that if you are a bruised reed, a faintly burning wick, if you are a Charlie Brown Christmas tree, homely and in Jesus Christ, God doesn't beat you up, doesn't shame you, doesn't say it's all your fault, how could you, I am so ashamed of you, but instead says, I am here for you. Jesus is for you to be with you. If you're extinguished, that's okay. I am the fountain of living water. I don't run dry. I am the light of the world. I don't go out. But then also... Hey, by grace, if you come to me in all of your bruised and extinguishedness, let's do some things together. You can know the dignity of fruitful living for other people once again as we put things back together bit by bit by bit. And so if you're in a season where you're feeling like Advent celebration doesn't really fit you, Jesus yet is for you. Because the best Christmas story of all time is true. 
Jesus really did come to earth. He really is crucified and has risen again. Years ago, I was reading a review article about a series of books from Italian author Elena Ferrante, if any of you are familiar with her. And there was a line by this author that talked about why we love authors and why we love stories. She said this, also in the Reflections book. Sometimes you need someone, an author, to help gather the scattered fragments of your existence. A writer is a friend who can find the thread of your story when you are too, too blinded by your lies to grasp it yourself. She can give you the beginning and the end you need, if not in life, then in fiction. Talking about a good author who writes a good story in all of your mess can give you a better story and the beginning and the end that you need. And this author here qualifies it and says, it's only in fiction, but isn't that great? The reality of the gospel is that it's not only in fiction. It's in life, and it's real, and it's true. That's who the servant is, and we'll wrap up just for a minute with what the servant does. And these are some themes that we'll return to in subsequent sermons this December as well. The servant makes things right. The servant brings justice. The word justice here in just four verses occurs three different times. End of verse 1. I will put my Holy Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands, the farthest reaches of the Israelite imagination, way out there, ends of the earth. Even they wait for his law. Similarly, we're going to sing this Advent season, peace on earth, it's joy to the world, right? What if that's not just a story, but is real? And that gives us hope as well to strive for, to cry for, to hope for, to work for justice and for things to be made right in our own day because Jesus is the author of all things, including the author and perfecter of our faith, tells us the end when that's going to be justice all the time. So our labor here and now is not in vain. As small as it might seem, we press ahead because a full restoration is coming. And we understand that that restoration occurs through reconciliation by the cross. Our final sermon of the series, the last Sunday of Advent, Church on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 11-15, here at Liberty Collingswood. See you there. The last servant song is Isaiah 53, if you know that passage, the one about the suffering servant. So in the full revelation of what God has for us in the servant, the anointed servant is the appointed sufferer. The anointed servant is the appointed sufferer. And Jesus is the one that went and bled and died on the cross for us, making atonement, paying the penalty for our sin. I'm going to talk about this more on December 24th, but one of the Achilles heels, I think, of modern personhood formation is that we can't be whole people unless we understand that some of it is our fault. Not all of it. Some of it's got to be. Jesus doesn't shame you for it, but he does ask you to own it as he loves you, as he forgives you. You see, bruised reeds and extinguished wicks, we can't rebuild ourselves. We can't forgive ourselves. 
We can't redeem ourselves. But this is precisely what Jesus has come to do. And so in all of your scatteredness, your disobedience, disillusionment, preoccupation, turn in this season to the servant by faith and receive God's prepared consolation for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.